Resonate is a community that loves like Jesus, and we want you to experience that with us together. So I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week, and ways you can support our ministry is first, follow our Instagram page, then like our Facebook page, and you can listen to this broadcast and make comments underneath as you wish. So you can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org, under the Give tab. And I want to encourage each and every one of you to do so. So we are now in a season of Advent. And so for us non-liturgical types, Advent is a lot. It's a very, it's a very important season. It's, it's more than just that time to open those little doors of this weird box house thing and eat blood chocolate inside, right? So Advent is a time that we reflect on the anticipation of the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus. So Christians, we reflect a lot of times on the second coming of Jesus, and that's when Jesus will bring heaven and earth together and resurrect the dead and make all things new, and we look forward to that hope one day. Advent is that time that we reflect on the first coming, the the child, the Messiah coming as a child in this Christmas scene that many of us know that we celebrate each and every year. Advent is the season of waiting for that moment. So in Advent, we usually light candles for each week, and then the Christ candle on Christmas Eve. And each candle or each Sunday represents a traditional Advent theme. So today is hope, and then we have peace, joy, and love. So let's talk about the anticipation of the coming of Christ. A lot of us focus on the second coming of Christ, like in 1 Thessalonians 5, I want to read 1 through 11, and we focus a lot on the second coming of Christ because we live in post-first coming of Christ, looking forward to that second coming of Christ. But I think that there is a lot to learn from both entrances into the world. So we don't need to write to you about the timing and dates, brothers and sisters, it says in Thessalonians. You know very well that the day of the Lord is, is going to come like a thief in the night. So there's a metaphor there. There's an idea that Jesus comes in the night, but also maybe in secret or in a humble place or a small place. So when they are saying there is peace and security at the time sudden destruction will attack them, like labor pains start with a pregnant woman and they definitely won't escape. But you aren't in darkness, brothers and sisters, so the day won't catch you by surprise like a thief. All of you are children of light and the children of the day. We don't belong to night or darkness. So then let's not sleep like the others, but let's stay awake and stay sober. So that's another metaphor for alertness, beyond watch. So people who sleep, sleep at night, and people who get drunk, get drunk at night. Since we belong, unless you day drink. So since we belong to the day, let's stay sober. Wearing faithfulness and love is a piece of armor that protects our body and the hope of salvation is a helmet. God didn't intend for us to suffer his wrath, but rather to possess salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul in this letter 
and in this passage is giving mandates, and we're used to mandates right now, right? So Paul is giving mandates to be prepared. That's like a mandate we receive now. You need to prepare yourself. You need to be watchful. Watch the horizon for the hope of salvation to be made full, which brings us basically to the idea that Advent is about hope, and hope is a very, very packed word. So there's theological hope, actually, that you can read through Scripture, and you can you, there's very specific passages about hope. But theological hope was actually born, as I would say, it's, it's not a new theology. It's, it's, a, it's a modern idea, though, that we talk about hope. Hope was born out of the Second World War. And you had the world of biblical scholars, mainly German, who basically came on the social scene post-Holocaust. And they had to answer a very important question. How did God allow people just like them to put the world on basically the brink of destruction and almost wipe out an entire ethnic group, but many different ethnic groups, actually? How did, how did that happen, and how are they supposed to respond now as Christian people? So not only did they almost just kill an entire group of people, they did kill an entire group of people, an entire ethnic group of people that they were trying to wipe off the earth, basically. But now they're going to tell them that they're going to hell? Well, that's, that's really a dilemma that they had to sort through. So during the war, there was a group called the Confessing Church, Confessing Christians, and there was a person by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a member of the community. And they would get together and they would pray that this would not be the end of the world. They had hope in the middle of destruction, in the middle of Holocaust, in the middle of just crisis, that this would not be the end of the world. There had to be more, that God would give them more time to be able to, to, be able to share the good news that, that Christ was for everyone and the love and the joy and the peace was for the entire human, the human population. They were waiting in, temp, in, in anticipation, praying that they could give more, that they could be more, that they could offer more, that this wouldn't just be the end. So that was their prayer, and I think that that needs to be our prayer too, that this wouldn't just be the end, that, well, yesterday left, and today is here, and tomorrow will be, and probably next week we'll all just, it'll all be over. That's not hope. Hope is about that the world would not end. Hope is about that Christ would not come back necessarily right now, that we would have more time to offer love, that we would have more time to offer peace. A lot of times people just put hope in the camp of Genesis, that there's this garden scene in Genesis and God created this beautiful place without blemish and this beautiful garden scene and hope is about one day that be recreated, that Jesus would come back and recreate all that and that we would be able to live in, in unity and harmony and interdependency with this new heaven and earth. And that's true and I believe that, that will be Yet the hope that, uh, that we need to have is not just like some self-idea that one day I'll be saved and that I look forward to salvation and eternity. No, it's about, it's about giving of ourselves. It's about giving of ourselves into the future and hoping that tomorrow 
that we could, the mercies would be new again, that we could give hope, love, and offering, and generosity tomorrow, and that Christ, this would not be the end, that there would be more time to give to others. Well, oftentimes we criticize our giving during the holiday season, and I actually love giving during the holiday season, and I, I do love giving gifts, and it's nice to give gifts to someone that you've really thought and, and thought hard about, and you've thought hard about the gifts, and you, you give that person something that they really could appreciate. And I think that, that if all of us woke up and said, well, we're not going to give during Christmas, that would be a problem for a lot of people, because I think that there, there, is, there is that joy of Christmas giving. And I know that there's materialism of Christmas that's difficult to sort through, and what the world has done to the season. I know that that is a problem. Yet as Christians, I think we are mature enough and we need to be mature enough to think through all of that and find value in the rhythm of the holiday and still be generous, to still give of ourselves, our time, talents, and treasures, that that would be reflective of our hope that's inside, that we would be able to give more tomorrow, that we would be able to give more the next day, and we would be able to enter into somebody that's just hurt or in pain, and we would be able to shine the light of Christ into their world. And that brings me to Isaiah. We have the first com- or the second coming we talked about, and then we have this first coming that's reflective, and there's nuances of the first coming in the prophet of Isaiah. And the people walking in darkness have seen the great light. That's how, that's how it starts out. And on those living in a pitch dark land, light has dawned. You have made the nations great. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as those who divide plunder rejoice. As on the day of Midian, you've, you've shattered the yoke that burdened them, the staff on their shoulders and the rod of the, their oppressors. Because every boot of the thundering warriors and every garment rolled in blood will be burned fuel for the fire. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and authority will be, be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing and sustaining sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. So this sounds a little bit different than the the passage of Handel's Messiah, right? The hallelujah passage. And we we hear it a little bit different. In this season of Advent, I I want you to hear that version and the nuances of that Old Testament passage and how how it just rings so true in the birth of Christ and how the nuances of it we see in the New Testament. The New Testament writers actually quoted from this passage, and many of Jesus and his prophecies about himself come straight from the book of Isaiah. So the, so the poetic nature of the prophets basically outline and size up their situation, their world that they're experiencing right now. So Right then, when Isaiah was written, there was darkness. There was impending destruction, right? If this action would continue that, that was happening in their, in their nation, and exile and separation from God would happen. They would be separated from God. 
But the prophets never left their hearers, even though there was impending destruction and darkness and those that lived in darkness. You see 39 chapters of judgment throughout the text, but interwoven, you see hope and you see grace and you see light and you see joy and you see faithfulness and goodness. Basically, you see this all woven through this Messiah message, this section of hope through the Messiah. So the first idea I want us to give, uh, based on this Isaiah passage, is hope is, is in the light. And light is a really important component of our world. Let there be light. Light is something that you don't necessarily see. Or you're not looking at, you're trying not to look at light. Light helps us to see. It, it, it tells us to see. It shows us what we can see. So Isaiah opens up the prophecy with the metaphor of light versus darkness. They're in opposites. Yet light needs darkness and darkness needs light. Since they're opposites, they need each other to recognize one another. You can't recognize light without darkness and darkness without light. So the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in a pitch dark land, light has dawned. So light in the sense is the glory of God shining into the pain and the agony and the heartache and the hurt that God's people are living in slavery and exile and in imprisonment. And when you see references in, in scripture about light like this, first, a lot of times you can just re relate that and equate that to God's presence, God's presence into life. That in darkness and despair, they've seen a great light. They've seen God's presence. But yet God's presence, God just doesn't stop showing up one day. God's presence is always, it's eternal. And God literally doesn't, he doesn't just, he doesn't just show up in this situation or remove himself from the situation. He's ever present. He's all there. And so God changes their situation with the light. So Judah becomes a great nation again, and they have joy, and they rejoice. They rejoice in victory, that their assets could be gathered again, restarting their nation, restarting their life. And Isaiah is, is basically speaking to a nation where Babylonians, the oppressors, were there advancing, impending destruction. It was only a matter of time. In the great darkness, the time of darkness, the crying out to Yahweh needed to happen. It, it needed to be because great light was also on their doorstep. There was great light in the darkness. There was joy, actually, in their defeat. So hope is seen in the light, but hope is also then seen in this character, this person, this idea of a person named the Messiah. So throughout the Old Testament prophets, they often point to a figure that would flip the oppressive system upside down, that even though the Babylonian Empire was there, it was impending destruction, that one day the Messiah would come and flip that upside down, that slaves would be free, that that, would be that which was taken would be given back. They would rebuild. The Messiah would help them to rebuild. The Davidic, as you see in this passage, the Davidic kingdom would be once again just great, and the glory of God and the glory of David would be seen again 
in their nation and, and they would be free. They would reset everything. It would be the year of Jubilee. All debts would be released. Land holdings would be reset. And there would be this image of power. There would be this place of, 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 of peace in power instead of power in conquest. So it says in verse 4 and 5, as on the day of Midian, you've shattered the yoke that burdened them, the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressors, because every boot of the thundering warriors and every garment rolled in blood will be burned fuel for the fire. So the day of Midian is actually referencing the to Gideon's defeat of the Midianites in Judges 7. So Gideon is this perfect example of Messiah, right? That people of Judah were looking for that kind of person that would come in and conquer and, and take over and reestablish. And Gideon was the anointed one at the time. And so this Hebrew word anointed is in the Greek word then would be Christ. And so Jesus is Lord and Christ, but so was Gideon. And so we we see that there were many little Christs out there, the people that would conquer. So the people of God were looking for somebody to come in like Gideon or like something like a Gideon to destroy their oppressors and on a walk, on a rock and in a wine press their heads would be crushed. So Gideon's name literally means destroyer, faller of trees, faller of trees. But this is just part of the story. Isaiah then talks about the instruments of war being burned. And in that, only helping the, 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 the greatness of God to be shown even more that not only is the war over, not only are the oppressors killed, but even the weapons of destruction were burned to show that forever there would be peace, that there would be eternal peace that was reestablished in their, in their nation. But it says a warrior is born to us. And it says in, in later that this warrior, this Messiah, this, this Christ, we see in, in the Greek in the New Testament, this Messiah is in the form of a child. Now that's a problem because they thought it was going to be the opposite of a child. That the, at the, in, the, in the times of Isaiah and Jeremiah, you see these figures of Messiah as different. The Messiah figures got bigger and bigger and more powerful and smarter, more handsome and more and more the nations, they labeled that as a desirable leader, that they would conquer bigger and bigger and bigger events. And at the time of the arrival of the Messiah, the Messiah was supposed to be a huge figure coming in on this beautiful white horse with a huge sword and just coming in, conquering every oppressor that would stand in the Messiah's way. But yet, the simplicity of a child didn't match that. Yet Isaiah tells us that, it, that it's in the simplicity of the child. And in the Gospels we see in the New Testament, it's not this grandiose act. It's actually mundane. It's actually simple. And the Messiah is a person that's born of a, through a person and became a person and first in the form of a child in very modest circumstances. So not only is, is hope found in this idea of Messiah, this character, this person, but that person is a child. So hope is found in actually a baby. It's found in a child. 
And in verse 6 and 7, it says, A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom. Do you see the bigness of this? But in a child, this happens. Establishing and sustaining it, it's sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. So when, when Isaiah gives the Messiah titles of power, you see this like this perfect king in the line of David, wise and cunning and powerful to run the entire world. And, and this kingdom is not limited by time and space. It's just vast and immeasurable. And the Davidic, the Davidic kingdom was this idea of heaven. And the description of this kingdom, peace and justice and righteousness would be prevail, would be would prevail. That's the exact opposite of what Isaiah was experiencing. And, and he's just asking the people to think about this Messiah in the form of a child. So Christians looking back on this passage would definitely see this as a description of the reign of Jesus, that we can see this forecasted now forward into the Gospels, even though Isaiah was writing about his time and about his situation and about himself, actually writing about himself, we can project this forward and find Christ in this idea. And we see in Luke 2, starting in verse 8, nearby shepherds were living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night. The Lord's angels stood before them. The Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said, don't be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you, wonderful, joyful news for all people. Your Savior, your Messiah, is born today in David's city. Do you see the reference there? He is Christ the Lord. This is the sign for you. You will find a newborn child wrapped snugly and lying in a manger. Right? So we, we know that scene. But you see it now referenced in the Isaiah passage. Suddenly a great assembly of the heavenly forces was with the angel, praising God. They said, glory to God in heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. So same words are used to describe Jesus and Luke and Isaiah. And we see this in the Messiah. And we receive this Messiah in Jesus of Nazareth ultimately. So we read this poetic passage of Scripture that points to the Messiah and the advent, the waiting, the coming of the Messiah. But we know now that the Messiah was not this bigger figure, bigger figure, and bigger ideas, and bigger conquering wars, and all these things. No, it comes in, in, he comes in a baby form. Well, if you just want to be practical with this story, let's be practical for a moment. How does this apply to me? Because we've heard this Jesus story so many times. And, you know, being almost 50 like I am, I've heard this story quite a few times over the years. And I, and I know the story about Jesus being born. And, and yes, I've learned different historical ideas about the nuances of his birth and exactly was it in a barn? Was it in a stick wood building? Was it in a cave? Was it you know, in a, in a, in a stone-like manger, was it in a way? There's all kinds of thoughts and ideas around the birth of Christ. But if you just look at the practical ideas with Isaiah and you look at the practical ideas of the Gospels, you see 
light, and darkness. And through the Christ child, the hope that we give the world is to be the light in the darkness. That we as instruments of his peace, instruments of his spirit, housing his spirit, that we are a vessel of the spirit of God. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we go into the world as a person. And and the controversial statement of, I don't need God for everything. I need flesh and blood sometimes. That's true. That is a very true statement. We need flesh and blood. And I will say that we need flesh and blood so much that we need it to survive. We cannot survive without flesh and blood. So when I'm depressed, I need flesh and blood. When I have anxiety, I need flesh and blood. When I'm, a, when, I, when I'm a scared. When I'm scared, I need flesh and blood. When I'm having problems, I need flesh and blood. When I have big decisions to make, I need flesh and blood. I need the light in the midst of my simple darkness. And so how can I be a simple light to those that are in darkness? Because honestly, in order for me to know that I'm human, I need other humans. And in order for me to know that I'm Christian, I need other Christians around me reflecting Christ towards me. And even if it's a bad reflection, even if it's a cracked mirror that I'm looking at, there's still some love there that I need to see. And the, and the mirror itself might be dirty and dark and murky, and maybe, maybe it is broken. But sometimes it's beautiful. And sometimes I, I, I see Christ in people and I see Jesus looking back at me. And I need that in my life. I need people to reflect Christ towards me. And there's beautiful types of mirrors out there reflecting Jesus. And, and if you continue that metaphor, the, basically the glory of God is seen in, in others and how they give of themselves and how they heal and how they build orphanages and how they take care of desperate babies and how they, how they care for children that are, that are rejected children, how they love the ones that are houseless and, and they care for those that are abused and they stand in the gap for those that don't have voices in this life and they stand in the gap for those that have been oppressed and those that are sitting on the margins or those that have endured racism or those that have endured all kinds of systemic oppression in this world, even today, right now, today, right now, in this hour, there are people, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful reflections of light in this world. And we need that. We need people standing in those kinds of places to see the light in the midst of the complete darkness, in the complete darkness. So what I'm calling us today in this Advent season is to reflect on God into reflecting God into our into our relationships, that we would search out those that are hurt, depressed, disenfranchised, or others in our life, and we would just bring light to them. That we would reflect light into them, and many times this is not ever without words. It's just being present in somebody's pain, listening to them, speaking only when asked, having empathy, crying with them when they cry, and weeping with them when they weep, laughing with them when they laugh, hurting with them when they hurt, sitting with them when they're in pain, when they're lost, feeling their loss, when they're joy, feeling their joy. So the darkness of the winter months are upon us, and the depression of our society is through the roof. How do we reflect light in these dark places? Well, I would say that we need to start walking. Then we need to start looking and we need to start being present 
for people's lives. I get on social media all the time and I look at people's feeds and and you know what? A lot of people's feeds right now are just only about them. Well, that's pretty much standard for social media. It's all about us. It's all about the selfie. It's all about the self. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how great I am. Look at how the trouble I'm having. Now, if you are having trouble and you're being honest, let's be light to those people that are crying out for help. But just putting yourself out there and saying how great you are and stuff, that's that's just not what people need in their life. People need flesh and blood. They need light in their darkness. And if we keep our eyes on the horizon, the dawn is coming and we know that Jesus will be here soon. We need to pray just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer prayed back in the midst of a Holocaust. God, it is not over. We are not over. We need more time. Lord, don't come back yet. We need more time to bring light to this darkness, the gospel, the good news that Jesus is here, that he saves, Jesus saves, and be that hope to other people to have eternity in their life. And so we look for that day. We look for that, that continuation. That's our hope. Yes, I know that Jesus is coming back, but I want more time. I want more time to love the gospel message right into my, my family members, my, my nieces and my nephew and my children and the people around me. I want to love the gospel mission. I need more time. And that's the advent of hope. I can wait for the coming. Yes. And I'm in this waiting. I'm in the advent. And in this waiting, I'm asking God, I need a little more time because I want to love the gospel, flesh and blood into other people. And when we do that, we flip the oppressor upside down. And all of a sudden, people experience freedom. People experience that which is taken from them is given back and their worlds are put back together. Through love, we see that their kingdoms are put back together and their nation is healed. So one day Jesus is going to come back and make all things new, and I know that. Right now, in this Advent, We need to love flesh and blood. Walking around in our worlds, love people and love the gospel right into people's lives. And that's what our mission is. That's what my hope is, that that's my call for you. That's the practical advent. That's the practical hope. That's the theological hope that turns into practice each and every day. And I hope that we we take that seriously, especially right now in our world, in our culture. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus coming. And we are so grateful that Jesus came and we are in this season of waiting for the second coming, we know. We celebrate the first and we wait for the second. Lord, help us to be doers of grace, lovers of your your people, that we would love the gospel into people's lives that we would enter into people's worlds and be light in the midst of their darkness in simple, simple ways. Help us to do that each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.